Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to take them and turn with me to the book of 3 John. 3 John is the third from the last book in the Bible, the little one-chapter book way in the back there. It does happen to be the shortest book in the Bible by word count, uh, and we will look at it in its entirety this evening. So at the very least, when you go home tonight, you can say, I've heard a sermon on all of 3 John. Uh, Take that. So I do want us to, I do want to draw our attention to the text here in just a moment, but before I do, uh, let me pray and ask God again to bless us and help us in this hour as we sit under the authority of His Word. The third John is a delightful letter, a letter uh, that's very pastoral and friendly in tone, and yet it contains for us, I think, uh, some real significant challenges Uh, that we need to be confronted with as the church in the 21st century, no less than the church in the first century to whom John was writing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again. Our hearts are overflowing with anticipation that we might hear your Spirit speak through your Word, that he would convict us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, that we might be those who find that sweet intersection of Christian doctrine and Christian living. God, help us, we pray, that we might be those who model the grace of God and extol the glory of God from here to the ends of the world. Speak now, Lord, your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Third John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth." I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he write its truths on our hearts. 
I wonder if you're familiar with the term fratricide. I think uh, just listening to the word fratricide, you hear two words that are uh, uh, more commonly uh, understood. Uh, fraternity, we hear the fraternity there, and then that word side, we think of other um, uh, we think of, of death when we think of that, homicide and suicide and so forth. And fratricide is the killing of one's own brother or sister. Uh, very rarely do we mean when we say fratricide, interfamily violence between blood-related kin, but more often that term is used to describe the unfortunate uh, happenings in war where friendly troops will open fire inadvertently on friendly troops costing them their lives. It was a constant uh, concern in combat that the people that you were lobbing uh, indirect fire ordnance at may have been your own. And so there's a very real need for people in, in the command and control environment to uh, have awareness of where all friendly troops are at any given time. And those of you who have followed along with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan know that fratricide was a, not an uncommon occurrence, but not as common as it has been in other wars as well. It's a terrible thing. Uh, blue on blue is what we called it, the, the killing of friendly troops inadvertently. And, and I say inadvertently on purpose because in the majority of cases, it's inadvertent. Uh, everybody's seen the Vietnam-era movies where the, the lieutenant is leading the troops poorly, and so some, some sergeant is planning to throw a hand grenade at him in the next battle. That stuff doesn't really happen. Uh, fratricide is by and large accidental, and it's a shame because it causes loss of life and harm to people that you care about deeply or should care about deeply. And fratricide doesn't only happen in war, my friends. And the unfortunate reality of the Christian church is that fratricide occurs within the body of Christ and on somewhat of a regular basis. Those of you who have been Christians for any amount of time and have been a part of more than one church or maybe even have experienced it in this church know full well the pains of friendly fire. Uh, fratricide in the church is when Christians assassinate the character of other Christians because of disagreements over secondary or tertiary issues or because of jealousy, because of the success or, or seeming success of somebody in competition with them. It's when they gossip about one another. It's when the sin of pride ruins Christian fellowship, either by leaders in the church or by individuals within the church. And this was a first century problem, and it's a 21st century problem. Almost weekly, we read an article on some website of a Christian pastor who's been removed from office over abusive leadership practices, where he bullies and demeans the elders or the deacons or the members of the church in order to exalt his own brand. Supposedly godly men who domineer over their flock in shame. Or it's the Christian author or teacher or artist or blogger who's better known for throwing brothers and sisters in Christ under the bus than they are for their own faithful ministry. In fact, their own faithful ministry is really about throwing other people under the bus, isn't it? We know who they are. But it's not just out there. It's not just that blogger with his website or that author with her book or that pastor from that church that's been uh, sent away packing because of his abusive leadership, it happens in the homes of Christian men and women, like us, around the coffee table or at coffee shops where two believers speak in seemingly innocent language about another Christian, but what they're really doing is tearing them down through their conversation. 
Christian fratricide is rampant, and it's destructive, and it's painful, and it blasphemes the name of Christ. We say here at Christ Covenant Church on the first Sunday of the month when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, there is only one broken body in the church, and it's Christ's. If you've been on the receiving end of it, you can attest to the fact that it feels almost impossible to forgive, impossible to overcome or forget the pain of Christian fratricide. What I find most unfortunate is that Christian fratricide is most often committed under the banner of or under the umbrella of pursuing the truth. Have you noticed this? It's far less about opinion and far more about dogma discernment bloggers ripping into other Christians who simply disagree with their take on something, usually secondary doctrinal issues, men and women in the church tearing one another apart over issues of conscience as if Paul had never written Romans chapter 14. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? It's when you walk into the church two minutes late And you catch that sideways glance from the person who's always checking their watch to see who comes in late as if that's some indicator that you maybe love God a little less than they do. Or you forgot because you haven't driven your car in three or four days and you need to stop and get gas on the way home and you go to that one gas station that's out of the way just in case somebody drives by and sees you there. You don't want them to see you on Sunday pumping gas in your car. It's pastors leading their churches in ways that there's simply zero room for healthy, intellectually honest, historically defendable dialogue or debate over doctrine. Their perspective is that if you're wrong and you don't hold to my position, frankly, you might not even be a Christian. And this should sicken us. It should upset us. It should really bother us that this is not only true in the church and going on in the church, it's frankly becoming some of what the church is known for. What element of Christian character is missing from this whole debate, this whole idea of Christian fratricide? There's a a Christian characteristic which is meant to be a result of believing the truth that's missing, and that's the element of love, isn't it, of Christian love. Paul in Titus chapter 1, you know, we've gone through Titus just recently in our evening sermon series. In Titus chapter 1, Paul says that he is a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. That's good. We want to pursue the truth, which accords or leads to godliness. Christian fratricide done in the name of truth, but without godliness or love. Love and charity and mercy and peace and kindness within the Christian community are becoming a dying practice It's as if many in modern-day Christendom have decided that God is merciful and gracious and kind and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's his business. It's my job to bring the hammer. James, however, tells us in chapter 3, verse 17, that the wisdom that comes from above is first pure and then peaceable and then gentle and then open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Ask yourself this question the next time you find yourself in a disagreement with a brother or sister in Christ. Is my posture towards them pure and peaceable and open to reason and gentle and full of mercy? If it's not, then what you're doing subtly is you're drawing your gun and you're putting in your magazine 
and you're waiting for them to turn their attention somewhere else so you can open fire. What a horrible posture for Christians to take. And John is dealing with this issue of Christian fratricide in 3 John. In 3 John, he's dealing uh, not only with two positive characters, Gaius and uh, Diotrephes, excuse me, Demetrius, but he's dealing with this man, Diotrephes, who's opening fire on everybody in the church, especially the ones that he disagrees with. So John's dealing with this issue of Christian fratricide. But fortunately, 3 John gives us hope. 3 John gives us hope in the middle of all of the pain that we've dealt with within the Christian church, the pain of those arrows being fired at us, the regret and guilt we have of firing those arrows at other people around the room from time to time. There's hope to be found in 3 John. John tells us what real gospel-informed living looks like. He tells us that the gospel has an impact on the life of the true Christian, and Gaius and Demetrius serve as exemplars of this godly living, two men who are concerned with the truth and also practicing the love of Christ. In other words, you may have heard Jim Van Erden mention this, and I've mentioned this phrase before. What we see here in 3 John with these two characters, uh, Demetrius and Gaius, is the intersection of orthodoxy which is the truth, and orthopraxy, which is the practice of true Christian living. And this evening, I want us to see the interconnectedness of these two things, that indissoluble link between knowing the truth and living faithfully according to that truth. There are some who think you only need one and not the other. Some believe that all you need is the truth because that's what's most important. If I get my information right, I'll be okay. If I get my information right and convey that clearly enough to my listeners, be they my children or my disciples or my friends, then they'll be okay also. Being compassionate, hospitable, humble, gentle, patient, those are really optional, secondary. The Christian life is all about the truth. Others, on the other hand, believe that love is all you need. If you live morally, then the particulars of your beliefs don't matter quite as much. Some people get so bothered with those nitpicky details about the truth. I can't be bothered with that. I'm out there doing the Christian life. I'm out there doing ministry. And so the truth really isn't all that important. Now, as in most cases, when we dichotomize these things that Scripture holds together, we tend to go astray, don't we? It's that age-old problem of antinomianism and legalism. You have the folks on the one hand who said, The gospel is a gospel of grace, 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 grace. And so we've been freed from the penalty of sin. We can go on living however we want. And so we swing the pendulum over here into the antinomian. There is no rule or law. There is no need for me to walk in a manner obedient to Christ or worthy of the gospel. And then on the other hand, you have a pharisaical legalism that says, really, I know that God saved me and it was merciful and all that, but I'm going to secure my salvation or lay hold of it or maintain my hold of it by my practices And the problem when people realize that folks are in one camp or the other is they think that the answer is to give them a little bit of the other issue. As if if the answer to antinomianism is just a little bit more regulation, just a little bit more rules. That'll really solve their their, uh, antinomian spirit. Or these folks look over here at the rigidly legalistic people and say, really what they need is just a little bit more grace. Well, the problem is the answer to one error is not a little bit of the opposite error. The answer to both those errors is Christ, is seeing Christ as both Lord and Savior. And the answer to the error of too much truth or uh, love that's disconnected from or or, um, uh, disconnected from the truth is to just 
give a little bit more of one or the other. But that's not what John shows us here. He says these two things have an indissoluble link that knowing the truth informs our Christian living and Christian living causes us to want to know more of the truth. Now, as we examine this text this evening, I want you to ask yourself this question. Is my life marked by an application of the truth in my daily living? Or is it marked simply by a desire to know more truth or just to show love? And while you may instinctively balk at the idea that there's a difference, according to John, there is. You know, John is concerned with the truth. The word eletheia, the word about truth, in the New Testament occurs 109 times. 45 of those times occur in John's writings. He was not unconcerned with the truth. Almost a full half of all of the occurrences of references to truth in our New Testament, John's the one talking about them. And you heard as I read the text how, much he, how seriously he takes it in this letter. But on the other hand, we cannot say that John is unconcerned with faithful Christian living. Because here in this chapter here, or here in this little letter, he brings it down to real life in the examples of these two men as he shows us what faithfulness, looks, faithfulness to the truth looks like in Christian living. We might say that believing the truth ought to have consequences. It ought to have consequences in the way we live. So I want us to look at the characters in this letter. We're going to outline Sir John according to the three characters, Gaius and Diotrephes and Demetrius, in order to see what the truth looks like lived out in faithful obedience to Christ in contrast to the harm that's, ha- that's caused by failing to apply the truth in Christian living. So let's look at Gaius. John begins, uh, as he does in Second John, with a tone of love and fellowship with this man. He calls him beloved over and over again. Did you notice that? Beloved Gaius in verse 1. Beloved, verse 5, he tells, excuse me, in verse 2, I pray that it may go well with you. Beloved, he says in verse 5, it is a faithful thing you're doing. And then he obviously closes the letter, verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate evil. And then he calls him his friend in the final greetings of 3 John. John loves this man. And he's so concerned with the reputation of Gaius' character that he brings out in his opening, uh, the opening of this letter, the nature of Gaius' application of the truth. He's heard this report from the men who have gone out here seeking help for their missionary journeys, and they've brought word back to the church. And John is so encouraged by the fact that Gaius is living in a way that brings joy to him. Now, he opens up by offering a prayer for his physical health. Did you notice that? He says, I pray, in verse 2, that all may go well with you and that you may be good in good health as it goes well with your soul. Uh, Some prosperity gospel preachers look at this verse as evidence that God cares more about our physical health than our spiritual health. Of course, that's not not what's happening here. Uh, But John does legitimately care about Gaius' health, doesn't he? Because we're not Gnostics, are we? We believe that God gave us these bodies and we should care about them and care about each other's bodies and our physical health. It's why we pray from this lectern here in our pastoral prayers for those among us who are battling cancer and sickness. We want the Lord to intercede. We care when, those, when you come down with pneumonia or you come Ill, fall ill with COVID or when you're battling some sort of mental or physical health issue. We care about those things because God gave us these bodies. And John does the same thing here. Now, the way he phrases this is kind of interesting. He says, I pray that it may go well with your health as it goes well with your soul. What if I were to pray for you 
and ask God to bless you physically to the same degree that you are healthy spiritually. Let me ask you that again. What if I were to pray for you and ask God to bless you physically to the same degree that you are healthy spiritually, and then what if he answered that prayer? What would happen? Would you suddenly become the healthiest you've been since you were in your late teens? Or would you find yourself bedridden with the flu or perhaps in the ICU near to death? What if God blessed you physically commensurate with your spiritual health? I had a professor in my undergrad who used to open uh, class on the day of a test every day, every time we had a test, and he would pray this prayer. He would say, Lord, help them to do as well on the test as they deserve for how hard they've studied. And all, across the room, oh, I guess I'm getting a C today. Right? His prayer was, I hope that your outward efforts by God's grace, match your inward efforts. Paul here prays for Gaius that he may be as healthy physically as he is spiritually. Obviously, recognizing that he is healthy spiritually, and we know that from the remainder of the letter. But what if I were to pray for you that way? Would you want me to pray for you that way? Would you pray for yourself that way tonight when you go home? Lord, give me as much physical health as I have spiritual health today. Or would you, right now, are you shuddering a bit to think of what might happen to your physical body when you wake up in the morning having prayed that prayer? John here moves into the body of the letter and he unearths the foundation of Gaius' character. He outlines for us why Gaius is beloved and why he brings John joy and why he is faithfully serving these traveling ministers. And it's because his lifestyle of love is rooted in his practice of the truth. Don't miss this. Uh, He tells him, or he says here in this letter, in verses 3 through 5, that the truth and his faithfulness in Christian living are indissolubly linked. He says, I rejoice that the brothers testified to your truth, as indeed you are knowing the truth. Is that what he says? No, he says you're walking in the truth. That means your behavior is being marked by your understanding of the truth of God's word. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Then he goes on in verse 5, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers who testified to your love before the church. Do you see the relationship between these things? As Gaius knows the truth, knows more of the truth, and is faithful to the truth, he begins to walk a certain way. He begins to live a certain way. And that looks like, as we're going to see here, Christian hospitality that he's welcoming these people, that he's supporting these people who are visiting, that he's showing love to these strangers who are on a missionary journey for the Lord. Paul identifies that these brothers that have been blessed by Gaius' hospitality don't come back to him and say, John, it was amazing. We met this guy who said he knew you at this church, and we had this wonderfully brilliant doctrinal conversation for hours on end. Boy, he really knows his stuff. You taught him so well. Once again, don't mishear me. John cares about that in the truth, in the truth, in the truth, in the truth. But what they say upon visiting Gaius is what? He was so loving to us. He showed us such love. They testified to your love before the church. This is too important for us to miss. Do we want here at Christ Covenant Church to be known as doctrinally faithful and orthodox? Of course we do. Of course we do. 
Should you individually and as families want to be known as faithful to the truth of God's word, as having the knowledge of the truth of God's word, knowing who Christ is and who God is and what the Trinity is and what redemptive history is and what the penal substitutionary atonement means and all those things, of course you should want to know those things. But if people don't think about love when they think of us, then our intellectual assent to the truth will count for nothing in the final analysis. If people leave your presence believing that you know a whole lot about God and never experiencing your love for them because of God, you have failed them on their way. We have failed them on their way. If men and women walk through the doors of this church and stay because of our orthodoxy, they will leave if they discover we lack orthopraxy. Because that's what people need. They need to be loved and cared for by the body to experience the compassion of fellowship in Christ, to know that there are men and women seated around them, in front of them and behind them, who are praying for them and care about them. Isn't that what you need? Isn't that part of why you came here and stayed? Because of the warmth and the love and fellowship that exists in this body? I certainly hope it is. I pray daily that this church would be a place full of the truth, a pillar and buttress of truth in this world that's known for its love. That's what John says about Gaius. No one will be cared for in our body or community if we only care about the truth disconnected for love. No one will experience the warmth of Christian fellowship in our ministries or around our tables. No one will darken the doors of this church, Christian or not Christian, if they don't believe that you care for them. No one is coming to you for soul care if you are a cold, snobbish, yet doctrinally faithful Christian. If you've experienced that before, you know exactly what I mean. Now, some of you are thinking, is that me? I love the truth. Oh, my friends, please don't misunderstand me. I love the truth. Maybe not tonight. Sometime, come by my study and take a look. There's no questioning whether or not I love pursuing the truth, knowing who Christ is, knowing about the doctrinal standards of our confession, knowing what the Bible teaches about topics from A to Z. But if those things lay hold of me to the point that I never show Christian love or hospitality or compassion or charity or mercy, then they are all for nothing in the final analysis. We want to be a place that models the grace of God, we say, and that looks like true Christian hospitality and love. That's why the visiting missionaries to Gaius were so thrilled and pleased by their journey, and it's what they record back to John when they meet him again. This guy loved us. One person has said, do you need a friend to comfort you and pull you through? Embrace the church. What a great statement. It's missing something, though, isn't it? This implies that the church must embrace you back. You can't just walk into a church whose website says we subscribe to the Westminster Standards and presume that you're going to find Christian love and hospitality. You're going to find Christian truth there, I would assume or hope. But does that mean you're going to find Christian love and hospitality? Do men and women come in here knowing that we know the truth and never experiencing that we love the truth and love them because of it? 
People need relationships. God made us to be relational beings. He looked at Adam in the garden filled with all these beautiful trees and wonderful delicious fruits and all these amazing animals, and he said, it's not good that this guy's alone. And there are those among us who feel absolutely isolated and alone in the midst of a crowd. We had 450 people here this morning, and there are people sitting among that number who feel totally alone. How shameful. Are they experiencing Christian love and hospitality through you, through us as a body here? So challenge, Gaius challenges us in, in two ways. Number one, to know the truth and then to walk in it. To know the truth and walk in it. Um, he says that we should be transformed by the truth of the gospel. And that transformation, people who have been changed by the gospel have a heart of hospitality and love and faithfulness and compassion and sacrificial giving. That's what we see here in Gaius' behavior. He loves them. He has joy in his heart. He lives a certain life um, reflective of the truth. And he sent out these missionaries supported for the work that they were going to do. There was sacrificial giving. You recognize, of course, in this list, a description of God's posture towards us, don't you? God himself is hospitable towards us. He is loving and faithful and compassionate towards us. Has there ever been a man who showed as much love as Christ showed us on the cross? Has there ever been such hospitality to strangers than the one who invites his enemies to become his friends and eat at his table? Has there ever been such sacrificial love as the one who gave his own life for sinners? Has there ever been such compassion as one who saw us in our need and then came down from heaven to feed us on his flesh and his blood? We sang here this morning, or excuse me, this evening, from hymn 57. And this line just struck me as I was singing it with you. Hallelujah, praise Jehovah, all my soul. The third verse and the third line, well, Jehovah loves the righteous and the stranger he befriends. That's exactly what's said here of Gaius. You did faithful things in all your efforts to these brothers, strangers though they were. That's reflective of God's character, isn't it? To welcome the stranger and the hurting and outcast among us into our company and to share what God has given us to them. There's a legitimate complaint leveled at the Christian church that we care far more about ourselves than about anybody else. And this text challenges us to think, are we being Christ-like in our hospitality, in our sacrifice, in our love and compassion? Would people characterize you the way they characterize Gaius in in 3 John? And this gives John great joy, doesn't it? The fact that the truth of the gospel has so impacted the life of his child in the faith that he's living according to Christ's commandments. He says, I have heard what you've done, how you're walking in the truth, and I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. What's your greatest joy? What do you desire most for those that you love? Now, Gaius is a child in the faith. He calls him my child, uh, my children are walking in the faith, and he's really speaking about spiritual children here. But let me speak to you parents here. Is your greatest joy that your children walk in faithfulness, walk faithfully according to the truth? I want to read this quote from Spurgeon. It's a bit lengthy because it's Spurgeon, Uh, and I, I may skip a little bit as we go for the sake of time, but It's very convicting. 
It's a grievous thing, he says, to see how some professedly Christian parents are satisfied so long as their children display cleverness in learning or sharpness in business, although they show no signs of a renewed nature. If they pass their examinations with credit and promise to be well-fitted for the world's battle, their parents forget that there is a superior calling involving a higher crown for which the child will need to be fitted by divine grace. Many who ought to know better think themselves superlatively blessed in their children if they become rich, if they marry well, if they strike out into profitable enterprises and trade, or if they attain eminence in a profession which they have espoused. Their parents will go to bed rejoicing and awake perfectly satisfied, though their boys are hastening down to hell so long as they are making money by the bushel. They have no greater joy, there it is, than that their children are having their portion in this life and laying up treasure where rust corrupts. Though neither their sons nor their daughters show any sign of the new birth, giving no evidence of being rich towards God, manifesting no traces of the electing love or redeeming grace or regenerating power of the Spirit, yet these parents are content with their condition. Now, I can only say of such professing parents that they have need to question whether they are Christians. If they will not question it themselves, they must give some of us leave to hold it in serious debate. When a man's heart is really right with God and he himself has been saved from the wrath to come and is living in the light of his heavenly Father's countenance, it is certain that he will be anxious about his children's souls, prize their immortal natures, and feel that nothing could give them greater joy than to hear that his children walks in the truth of God. Judge yourselves then, beloved, this, this morning, he says, Virgin, by the gentle but searching text What's your greatest joy? And before you answer that, don't miss the connection we made at the very beginning of this sermon. That there is an indissoluble link between orthodoxy, what we say we believe, and orthopraxy. And so I'm not asking you if in your mind you think to yourself, of course I want my children to be saved. (laughs) Who would say no to that? I'm not asking that question. Spurgeon is not challenging the question of whether or not you think the best thing for your child to do is be saved. He's asking whether or not you're living like it. Is your practice in accordance with your profession? Oh, yes. I want my children to grow up faithfully before the Lord, to know and love Him and experience the joy of salvation. But if you are letting your children live lives that distance them from the corporate fellowship of the Christian church, from the ordinary means of grace, from opportunities for fellowship with Christian young men and women of their age group, as you pull them further and further away from the covenant family and you limit their interaction with God to littler and littler and littler encounters with him through uh, little snippets of family worship here and there or asking them to come to church with you on Sunday morning only, what does your practice say your greatest joy is? Some might have to answer honestly, my greatest joy is that my child is really the best soccer player on his team. My greatest joy is that my child is getting into that school. My greatest joy is that my child hopes to have a job like I have, and I hope he does better than I do now. What's your greatest joy? Now, 
Diotrephes was the opposite of Gaius. Instead of being humble, he was haughty. Instead of being hospitable, he was hostile. Instead of supporting gospel work, he was causing trouble for those who were going out for the sake of the name. Instead of walking in the truth, he was speaking lies, even about the Apostle John. And he shows us the consequences or the life of one who espouses the truth but lives contrary to his profession. Notice in the text there's nothing that indicates that Diotrephes doesn't know the truth. It's not a doctrinal issue that's going on in this man's heart. It's a pride issue. Diotrephes is not being posited to us as one who doesn't know what's really going on, as if he's missed some of John's teaching, as if he doesn't uh, understand what the truth is. He's simply living contrary to what he does know he should be doing. Anybody here heard the term church boss before? Nobody? Church boss? It refers usually to a pastor or an elder or a member who so domineers the flock that he or she always gets their way. It refers to a person whose personality is so abrasive and voice so loud that no one dares contradict him or her, effectively paving the way for this person to run the church. I had a friend back in Montana who used to refer to such people as angels in the church. And when you would say angels, he would say, yeah, they're always up in the air harping about something. Mark Twain was right when he said, if I ever achieve humility, I'll sure be proud of it. It's the natural state of our hearts, isn't it, to seek our own reputation, and Diotrephes is this sort of man. I'm sure many of you have experienced the pain of abusive church leadership, of the gossiping, backbiting individuals within the church that try to run things and steer your life by their venom. It was the spirit of Diotrephes, and it still causes pain and division in the church today. He's a typical proud leader that does the same sort of things that we see today. Number one, he loves the place of preeminence. He's not the sort of man who says, not me, you know, I'm happy to serve however I can. I want to, no, he says, I want to be in front. He makes himself first, John says in verse 9. It was well said that you can tell how servant-hearted a person is by the way they act when you treat them like a servant. Don't forget that. Everybody says, oh, I want to serve. And then when they're asked to serve, they're like, well, not like that. I mean, I, I was thinking serving a little bit higher up the totem pole than that. You could tell how servant-hearted a person is by how they act when you treat them like one. Diotrephes, when he was given the opportunity to humbly serve the people of God in this church to which John is writing, he places himself first. He loves the place of preeminence. He does not acknowledge apostolic authority. He does not acknowledge our authority, John says in in 3 John 9. This is another problem with abusive leaders. They'll be asked questions. Well, how is it that you're approaching this idea the way you are? Historically, haven't we understood it this way? And they immediately stiff-arm that authority. Or Scripture has nothing to say about their behavior. It's always oriented towards you. I hope you hear from myself and from Neil, from this pulpit, even from Terry, who preached this morning, and others who have blessed us with their ministry, a posture of humility that doesn't say, I've got this all figured out, do like I do, but rather that says, I acknowledge that I'm as much in need of the saving grace and mercy of God as each one of us. I'm simply trying to lead you to the pastures at which God has fed me. It was said of Robert Murray McShane that his sermons were an outworking of his own soul's wrestling with God. 
That's what true Christian preaching and leadership looks like. As we wrestle with God and come face to face with the Savior and are convicted of sin and are fed and watered and nurtured and lifted back up off our knees, we come before you and say, oh, let me show you in this text what God has shown me. Is my greatest joy my children's salvation or is it their success? Brothers and sisters, I got to tell you, that's a battle sometimes, isn't it? But if we can't say with full sincerity, if my child never touches a ball that's related to sports, but gives their lives on the mission field sharing the gospel, that's a better life for them and an eternity in glory than the opposite version of that reality. Do we, mean, do we believe that? I hope that I do. I pray that I do. Diotrephes is the opposite. He loves being first. He, loves, uh, he hates to acknowledge apostolic authority. He speaks ill of those who contradict him. It's that voice you've heard it before, who will go around whispering against their enemies to create enough of a ripple in the group that when that, when that person starts to speak, they have no credibility before they've even opened their mouths. He does not support the work of the gospel, and he even excommunicates, puts away those who oppose him. It's no surprise that even today those who wish to put themselves first place their own teachings and opinions over that of the Bible. They speak ill of those who hold to the authority of Scripture or contradict them, and they even go so far as to remove from around themselves those who would question their authority and teaching. Now, this doesn't only happen for church leaders. It happens amongst members of the church as well, doesn't it? People who have decided to veer from the truth of God's Word and to go their own way start often by erecting walls between themselves and the people who ought to be able to speak truth into their lives. You young people, this happens when you start speaking about or thinking of your parents in derogatory ways. And you get together with your friends and you're like, you know, my parents keep saying this stuff, but what do they know? That was fine for them, but I'm going to live differently than that. And you start to speak ill of your parents out loud, maybe with your siblings, poisoning their minds, or with your friends who are equally interested in living worldly lives. And you start to erect walls between you and people, pastors and elders in the church, older men and women in the church who have the opportunity to speak truth to you, and you begin to distance yourself from them. And you find reasons to complain. You know what? I would love to hear what you have to say, but I noticed one time that you were speeding, so you've got no access to my life. You can't talk to me because I saw this one thing about you that bothers me. And that's the way it works. They start to box the world out from around them so they can live in their little safe space of sin. Diotrephes, excommunicates those who oppose him, loves to be first, loves to acknowledge his own teaching over that of the Bible, thinks that it's his way or the highway. He's an example of what happens when the truth is not applied to life. I'm sure Diotrephes had a pretty tight doctrinal position. Orthodoxy, check. But was he living according to that truth that he claimed to believe in? You see, there's this link between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And there's consequences to either believing and applying the truth and living like Gaius and Demetrius, or failing to apply that truth to the everyday grind of life in your relationships with your coworkers your relationships with your spouses and your children, your relationships with your fellow men and women inside and outside the church. 
Now notice John's response to this is shocking. John does not say, when I get there, I'm going to put him out of the church. He thinks he's a big man. I'm an apostle, capital A. I was with Jesus. I've written parts of the Bible. When I get there, I'm going to put him out. He thinks he's hot stuff. When I show up, I'm going to show him who's really in charge. Don't raise your hand. I learned this from Terry this morning. Don't raise your hand. Isn't there a part of you that wants him to say that? Oh, John, go to this church and put this guy out. Kick him out. He is causing damage and hurting people, sullying the reputation of Christ in his name. Get rid of this guy. You're an apostle, John. Go do that. And there's something in us, something in us that's drawn, that's drawn to this sort of fighter's mentality that we need to stand up for the truth. And if we don't do it, then nobody will. Let's ball our fists up and go out there and defend the gospel. What does John say? He says, be patient, Gaius. When I arrive, I'll talk to him. Talk to him? Doesn't it feel like the time for talking is over? But John displays patience and humility and compassion, love and joy and peace and long-suffering, doesn't he, in his response to this guy who's not just bullying traveling missionaries, but is lying and speaking ill of John himself. And John cares so little about his reputation that rather than going there and defending himself with all of his apostolic authority, he says, when I get there, I'll talk to him. Do you know why John does that? Because John used to be just like Diotrephes. Son of thunder. Jesus, do you see those guys over there? They're not with us. Should we call down fire from heaven and smoke them? What did John want? He wanted to put away people who weren't like him. And what did his mom ask Jesus for? Hey, can my boy sit at your right hand? Give him the place of preeminence. That's what he wants. He deserves that. Jesus says, that's not mine to give. What are you talking about? John knew exactly what it was like to be a man who loved the truth without love for others in his heart. And so he hears about this Diotrephes guy, and he says, you know what? I get it. I'm going to talk to him when I get there. Let me help you out, son. I've been where you are, and I got rebuked by Jesus it was a bad day. My mom didn't talk to me for like six months after I asked her to go talk to Jesus on my behalf. Have you experienced the life-changing impact of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Can any of us in this room look back on our lives before Christ and say, not much has changed? Of course a lot's changed. Of course The Lord has helped us in our sin struggles, and he's brought us closer to him, and he's taught us so many things. Why then are we so impatient with people who are just like we were or are? We should be far more patient like the apostle John is with those who we disagree with and who are living less mature Christian lives. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us that there are some people who are idle. They need admonishment. There are some people who are weak, they need help. There are some people who are discouraged, they need encouragement. And then he says the most shocking thing, but be patient with all of them. 
Because God's been patient with us, hasn't he? Well, John, of course, wraps up by pointing out not to imitate evil, but to do what's good, like Demetrius. He's got a good testimony from everyone. Here's another example, and we won't say much about this man, but he's the sort of guy who's living the life of orthopraxy insofar as he lives out the doctrine that he believes. What a eulogy to this man. We all ought to aspire to have words like this spoken of us after we're gone. She loved the truth and did good. His life was marked by godliness, gentleness, and faithfulness to the truth. Matthew Henry said, a name in the gospel or a good report in the churches is better than all worldly honor. Bullying, division, abuse, gossip in the church is painful, as many of you know. It has the potential to cause almost irreversible damage. People leave the church, and I'm not just talking about the local church, but some even leave the faith because of the abusive posture that many take in the church. In our hearts, we want John to say, don't worry, Gaius, I'm going to handle this mess. I'm going to come there, and truth will have victory, and Diotrephes will either repent or be excommunicated. But he doesn't. John offers us something far more valuable than vengeance. He says, peace. Peace, in verse 15. John offers a one-word reminder of the goal of Christian fellowship. Peace among the brethren. It's what Jesus left with his disciples. It's what the Spirit gives us in Ephesians 4. It's what we should pursue in the church. Peace with one another. Too many Christians cast off peace and love and unity and charity in their single-minded pursuit of the truth or vengeance. Truth is important. Make no mistake. It's all over John's writings. But it's never pitted against the other Christian virtues articulated in Scripture. It doesn't negate the other commandments. Remember what Jesus says, they will know you are my disciples by how well you argue and win battles over doctrinal issues within the church. No, he doesn't. He says, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Let's not forget that in our pursuit here of the truth. Truth is important. And so is love. And so is unity. And so is peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word from John this evening. Would you help us, Lord, to love the truth, to pursue it, not at the expense of Christian love and hospitality, but because of it, because we want to know you as you are so we can worship you as we ought to, so we can love each other with all of our hearts and souls and minds and strengths according to the way that you have loved us. Help us to be a church that's marked by hospitality and by true Christian love and fellowship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.